We're going to start a new study here in, over the next six weeks. We're going to be talking about words and how we use them and the impact that our words have. The scriptures speak a lot about the tongue, a very specific way of signifying the, the part of our body that does the talking, that does the articulating. And, uh, and it has a lot to say about the tongue. We have been studying Proverbs, seeking the wisdom of God in many different ways, on many different topics, and we come in the next six weeks to this issue of how we speak, the words we use, and the impact that we have with the words that we use. If you think about the problems that come to you every single day, maybe a child or a grandchild has a problem that they want you to to solve or perhaps they are doing something that needs to be solved and how that goes is determined a lot by what we say. Maybe there's a problem at work, an unhappy customer, uh, an unhappy uh, uh, business partner, whatever it may be, uh, a difficult colleague, how that situation goes can depend a great deal on what we say, the words we use, how we express ourselves in that situation. We all want to use words wisely in those moments, but we find ourselves often stumbling around in the things that we say and the words that we use. Um, It may be that you have people in your life, I hope you have people in in your life who do not know the Lord, and there comes a moment, as, as there did with... Uh, a gentleman that I am working with uh, this week where he says, I grew up Baptist, but then I discovered Hinduism. What do you say? Well, you, it had better be good. That's, and I'm, I'm still working on that. I'm going to see him uh, all this next week, and, and we're going to be uh, probably talking about those very things. The words that we use have a tremendous impact on the people around us. I designed this series and wrote it several weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and I did so knowing that the season when I was going to be preaching this series was going to be dominated by the election. And I figured, you know, maybe we'll have a few illustrations from the election of the power of words. I had no idea of what was going to break over this weekend of some of the things that candidates say. And in one case, 10-year-old things that a man said and was recorded without his knowing it, those things exist and are brought out for all of us to hear. And I don't know about you, but I just spent yesterday in a state of shock, grief, dismay, and not just at what those words were, but also the complicity of our whole society in the things that he expressed 10 years ago. Those things live on. And words that we have said 10 years ago, words that we have said 20 years ago, live on. They continue to have an impact. You may have in your heart today, this morning, the continuing life-giving blessing of something that, that someone said to you, a word that they said to you 30 years ago, or you may continue to live with the death blow of a word of rejection, cursing, whatever it may be. Those impacts go on and on and on. So this is a very important subject to all of us. We want to do well with our words. Here's what I've learned. Very important principle that I have found, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. i found that what we say flows out of whom we trust. What we say flows out of whom we trust. Think about it. If you're talking to someone you trust, 
the words you use, your tone in, in saying those words, those things, you're going to be open, candid, probably relaxed. You're going to be able to say things to that person you trust that you probably would not say to many other people. Contrast that if you're talking to someone you do not trust. How do you speak? Guarded, edgy, maybe resentful, maybe trying to pull back an anger that is just under the surface. Trust is everything in what we say. Who we trust determines how we talk. I want to show you an illustration of this, and uh, we're going to look at Psalm 18 this morning. We're going to illustrate that principle with the character of David in the Scriptures. Uh, And then we're going to see how what David said in Psalm 18 shows up in our text in Proverbs chapter 30. And how another man named Augur took David's example and applied it in his own time about trust. Who do you trust? And, and uh, how do you build your life on that trust? And then we're going to talk about us. How can we learn to trust God so that what we say comes out of a heart of faith and confidence, calm and peace, rather than a heart that is guarded, anxious, fearful, resentful, and always trying to bite back some curse, some criticism, whatever it may be. How do we learn to trust God in this way? Let me put this a little bit differently. As we talk about how to use words, it's very tempting for us to go into a lot of tactics. Well, if you want to... If you want to say this in a winning way, then use these words. Smile. Use this tone of voice, and it will go over better. It's tempting to talk this way as if that is the wise way to use words. But the overriding principle of the Scriptures is it doesn't matter what tactics you use. It doesn't matter how nice your smile is. If what you are saying is pulled out of a heart's treasure that is deadly, bitter, fearful, resentful, then you can put on the biggest smile you like and it will still be the curse of death to the person hearing you. So our tactics, biblically, really have nothing to do with it, with speaking wisely. Speaking wisely is about whom we trust. We're going to see that this morning. Let's think about David. David learned to trust God, and Psalm 18 is one of those passages that is especially powerful in showing how David learned that. He learned it through trial. He learned it by being in a a deep condition of danger, constant exposure to the threat of death or imprisonment, And uh, he was literally, at this time of his life, a hunted man. And he would always, throughout his life, be fighting one battle or another. And one of the things that David had to figure out and learn in these periods of his life was, who can I trust? In this period of his life that we were writing about in Psalm 18, he is being hunted by King Saul, who professed to love him and professed to want him to lead his armies and all of these things, and then Saul turned on him and started to hunt him down. So imagine David under this kind of distress. Someone comes to him and says, you know, Saul is inciting the various members of his court to kill you. He's actually looking for you right now so that he can kill you and get rid of you. What do you do? David, what do you say to something like that? Well, we know what David said in that instance. He went to the high priest and lied to the high priest. And because of that lie, got not only that man, but a whole town 
of priests and their families slaughtered by King Saul because the words that came out of his mouth came out of a heart that trusted in his own shrewdness instead of placing that trust where it belonged. In another instance, his men um, came to him in the wilderness and said, hey, you know, Nabal, that guy whose flocks and shepherds you have been protecting all this time, you know, that rich guy who we have been caring for all of these years uh, and, and looking after, we just asked him for a little bit of hospitality. He insulted us and sent us on our way calling you a rebel against your master Saul. What should we do, David? What does David say at that instance? Well, what comes out of his mouth is is an expression of who he trusts. What he said at that instance was, every man strap on your sword, we're taking this guy down in his whole household. A woman met him on the way and stopped him and said, why are you trusting in your sword? All you're going to do is bring blood guilt on yourself. Trust God, he will take care of you. You know what David said then? He said, you're right, and I am wrong, and I do need to trust God. Who you trust determines what you say and what you do. In another instance, he had trapped Saul in, uh, or had stumbled across Saul in a, in a cave, and his men said to him, this is your chance. You can get rid of, of this man who is hunting you down and trying to kill you. The Lord has given him into your hand. At that moment, David does not trust himself. He does not trust his men. He does not trust his self-interest. He trusts God and said, God forbid that I should take the life of my master. And he let Saul live and appealed to Saul as a son appeals to his father. What are we seeing here? We're seeing scenes like Psalm 18.4 where David says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, the grave, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. You ever felt like that? I'm going down. This is too big for me. I'm afraid. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And Psalm 18 is about David's learning to trust the Lord in that very situation when he's under threat. And um, he says, uh, drop down to verse 16, The Lord sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And David goes on to talk about how he studied the law of God and worked hard to learn how to obey it. And I want you now to focus on verse 30. Psalm 1830. He says, out of all of this danger, out of all of this distress, out of all of this sinning on his part, and all of this learning to trust God, he says this in verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield. For all those who take refuge in him. See what he says here? When God says something, even if I can't trust the king, Saul, even if I can't trust anyone in his court, even if I can't trust my own men, even when I can't trust myself, you know what I can trust? God's word. Because every word from the Lord proves true. And the Lord is a shield. That is to say, he's a strong defense against the things that come at you. You hold up 
the Lord, because of the word of God, he deflects the arrows. He breaks the blows of swords and axes. He breaks the spears and shatters them because the shield is strong, impenetrable, and cannot be broken. That's what David is saying. This is what I have learned. And if I have any wisdom in my life, David says, it's because I've learned this one thing, that the word of God is absolutely true. And he says at the end of this psalm, verse 49, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David learned that the decisions he makes and the things that he says to the people around him flow from whom he trusts. If he trusts himself, the words are going to come out crooked. If he places his hope in other people, his words are going to be filled with fear, anxiety, and resentment. If he learns and trusts the word of God His words will come out straight. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 30 and look at Augur. We tend to associate Proverbs with Solomon, David's son. There are a few sections of um, Proverbs that were written by other people, and this is one of them, Proverbs chapter 30 is written by this wise man, Augur, the son of Yaka, the oracle. That may be speaking of the fact that Augur himself is a prophet, or it may be speaking of the fact that what he says here is an oracle, a kind of prophecy, a revelation of secret things. In whatever way you take that, the first six verses are really about What do you do when you don't know who to trust and you don't know what's really true? When you're having trouble figuring out what's going on in life, where do you turn? What do you do if you're wise? David read these words for us, Dave Calkins. Uh, Let's review them. First four verses. How does Augur portray himself or perhaps the man uh, that he is describing The man declares, verse 1, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary, O God, and worn out. This is a very Hebrew way of talking. If you want to put across just how tired you are, you say it twice. And then you add something even more. You extend the idea. I am weary. I am weary and worn out. He's not saying something new there. He's just emphasizing how weary he is. I realize none of us feel this way today. We're all full of vim and vigor, optimism for the future. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we got a little sarcasm back there in the back. Uh, yeah. So we can relate to this. Yesterday, as I was looking at the news and looking at all of the levels of rationalization for what one candidate is saying on the one side and what another candidate is saying on the other side and coming to the conclusion, I can't believe any of this. It is not reliable. It would be foolhardy in the extreme for me to place any confidence in anything that any of these people are saying. So who do I trust? Well, this is a church, so you know what the answer is supposed to be. (laughs) It's a little less clear when we're looking at uh, your favorite news app and you're looking at all this stuff coming down on the news or looking at reactions from people on your favorite social media site, and you say, this is nuts. This is crazy. Who gets it anymore? 
What's going on here? Well, that's where this man is. He's weary and worn out. Verse 2, surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I don't know what I'm supposed to know. I'm supposed to know who to trust. I'm supposed to know these basic things, and I don't. Because I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And, you know, I get angry, I get resentful at at these outcomes when I trust somebody and it doesn't work out. And that anger just builds and builds and builds, and I express it and it doesn't do any good, and now I'm worn out. And I have to confess, I don't know anything that I need to know. What am I supposed to do? He compounds it, verse 3. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. He's saying, I don't know God. I can't see Him in this circumstance. I don't know where He is. I don't know what He's doing. I don't understand why this is happening. You can imagine David, who didn't do anything wrong, being chased down by a jealous and insane, bitter old king. What did I do, Lord, to deserve this? I don't deserve this. And I don't understand why this is happening. And I don't see where you are in any of this. I don't understand. Who can I trust? And how can I get out of this? Is there a way out of this? Verse 4 is kind of hard to understand, but it, it tells you some of the depths of the weariness and even despair, perhaps, that this man, maybe Augur himself, but at least the man he is portraying, feels. Asks a series of rhetorical questions. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? If I really want understanding, I need to go up to heaven, get that point of view, and come back down. Who has done that? Who has gathered the wind in his fists. You can't hold the wind. There is so much vanity going on in this world that you you can't even get your hands around it. The minute you think you understand what is happening, something else happens that just blows you right out of the water. You thought you'd seen everything and then it slips out of your hand. Who can gather the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has that kind of power to contain all of this. Just a little side note here. Whenever you see the waters or the seas or the waves in Hebrew poetry like this, this is not a positive thing. Water equals chaos in the Hebrew mind. This is crazy. It's nuts out there. You've got all those waves and breakers coming this way and that way. Who can contain and bring order to that level of chaos. I don't know. Who has established the ends of the earth? Who's the creator? Who, who started all of this anyway? Who gave us life in the first place? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. A bit of a challenge there. Uh, and, and there's a sense even of this man in Augur's portrayal, working himself up to a a pitch of, of passion, maybe anger and resentment. Anybody who thinks he's got answers about this is just fooling himself. No one knows what is going to happen out of all of these things, and you can't trust them if they claim to know the answer. So, verses 1 through 4, Augur's portrayal here of this kind of world-weary, drained, resentful, maybe depressed, this kind of person in Augur's portrayal, it matches what we're looking at in our world today, where for years now, many of us have felt, this thing's off the rails, and we don't know what is going to happen. And people keep telling us what we should believe is going to happen, and it never quite does. And so we don't believe anything anymore. So who has the answers? Now, let's circle back to where we began 
What you say flows out of whom you trust. You could put it a little bit differently. What you say flows out of whom you distrust. Gone on Facebook recently? How was it? Pretty depressing, actually. If you want to uh, immerse yourself in people trading insults, complaining, uh, saying things they think are funny but are actually just expressions of extreme bitterness. If you want to immerse yourself in that, you just go to Facebook and then scroll it. And it's just thing after thing after thing of, of this kind of bitterness. Why? Because what we say flows out of whom we trust or distrust. We are a people whose trust has been broken many, many times at many different levels. Our trust has been broken by certainly national institutions, state institutions, maybe county, city institutions. You may be here having, uh, feeling like you are not well served by, uh, by local government. And maybe that costs you. People are coming to church today all over our country with a distrust of what churches do, who pastors are, what they claim to believe, what they claim to say, and what they want us to believe. And so even as we're sitting here, I'm under no illusions that this is a neutral setting where we just kind of automatically trust everything the pastor says. That's not the way this is. So, um, a lot of what we say comes out of this sense that I cannot ever place trust in anyone else again. And since they all claim to represent God, I'm not totally sure that I can trust God either. So, what kind of decisions, what kind of speech flows out of that? Well, the Bible is categorical about that. Unwise, foolish speech flows out of distrust. Why? Because it's angry, resentful, not helpful, won't resolve conflict, won't solve problems. If you want to incite problems, just talk out of your distrust and your problems will get worse every time. Works like a charm. We're going to talk about that. So, um, here is a quotation that Augur brings in addressing the rhetorical questions that this man, maybe Augur himself, has been asking in verse 4. Who knows all these answers? Who's got his hands around this, this world we're living in? Who has control of the chaos? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And then this voice comes out of the past from centuries before, perhaps. We're not sure exactly when Augur lived. But let's say perhaps a hundred years before, this voice comes in reply. Verse 5 is a quotation of Psalm 1830, word for word. Augur answers this man, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Voice of David replies to this man. And Augur is the wise man who pulls out that scripture from Psalm 1830 and says, I know you've got questions. I know you're really bothered by what you're going through. Here's a man who went through worse, or at least the same. He couldn't trust any human being either. He didn't know which end was up. He didn't know the future. He had little hope at times that things were going to work out. He was not going to sit for any gimmicky, cliche answers. This is the voice of David speaking out of that kind of turmoil in his life. And here's what he said. Every word of God proves true. Proves 
That means there's a process where you hear or read his word, and then you watch. And in the unfolding process, his word proves to be true, faithful, honest, straight. You can rely on it. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. No human being has the answers to verse 4. No human being. Because no one has ascended into heaven and come down. No human being has gathered the wind in his fist. No human being has wrapped the waters of chaos in his garment and controlled them, brought them back to order. No human being has done that. No emperor, no king, no billionaire, no secretary of state. Nobody has done it. What is his name? It doesn't have a name because no human being has done it. None. But every word of God proves true. He knows the depths of the chaos. He knows it from the posture of superiority over it because the chaos is nothing to him. It is absolutely contained in the sovereignty of his will. And everything that God says about that chaos proves true. So, you're worn out and weary, too stupid to be a man. You don't have the understanding you think you should have. You don't have wisdom. You don't know the Holy One as you ought to know Him. Augur says there's a very clear answer here. Go to the Word of God. Search it. Learn it. Because what you say, what you decide, all flows out of who you trust. And Augur is saying, trust God. Furthermore, in, in this context, saying that God is a shield to those who take refuge in him, okay, you admit you don't have understanding, you admit you don't have the answers you need, this frustrates you, that means you have every motivation you need to hide behind that shield, to trust God's word. And more than that, to trust him so implicitly that you will do it his way when push comes to shove. So that when, when God is in front of you, he takes all of the blows aimed at you and you feel the impact, but you do not receive the destruction. Those blows come upon the Lord and they bounce off. Why? Because he gave you his word. So what is the motivation here? What does this drive us? It, it drives us right back here. And you might be saying, well, you know, Pastor, we knew that was going to be the direction of this because this is what we do every Sunday. We go back to the Word of God, and it is the Word of God, so of course we believe it. Now, this is the Sunday where we say, no, really. For sure, we need to go back to the Word of God. Nothing could be more obvious from the state of our country, from the state of our leaders, from the state of, uh, of those who claim to represent the church in national politics, nothing could be clearer than that we need to return to the word of God. So, Augur reaches a conclusion in verse 6. So, let's get the flow here. He portrays this man, perhaps himself, and answering this man in all of his despair and maybe even cynicism, he says, every word of God proves true. You're right, you don't have the answers. What God says will show you the answers you need. Therefore, verse 6, Augur's voice comes back, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. When we try to take God's word and make it say what we want it to say, who gets found to be the liar, God or us? 
Well, we're the ones who are wallowing in despair and bitterness because we don't know all the answers. But then, when we come to God's Word and we don't like what it says, we try to fix it as if it needs editing. And so we fix it out of our wisdom, which we already admitted and were despairing that we did not have. See how stupid this is? This is madness. So, he says, don't add to God's words. Be a receiver of God's words. Take them in. Learn them. Understand them. Build that up. We could spend more time on that, but I want to move on because I, I want to paint a picture here of what this looks like even in my own experience. Let's talk about us. If these words are true, and they are, then I think there are four things we need to do urgently. Um, when I was first in ministry, I learned about a church in Salem, Oregon, that was uh, down to four people. And uh, I really wanted to see that church thrive. I didn't see there wasn't any good reason why it couldn't thrive. And so we, we went to that church, and there was one man left in the church. And um, so I, I threw in my lot with that man and trusted him. And we grew enormously. All of a sudden, the parking lot's full, where it was crickets the week before. And so people driving down the particular road it was on would be pounded on their brakes and rubbernecking because all the... What happened over there? They have people there now. And so great things were happening. People coming to the Lord. And um, this man did not like uh, all of this turmoil and change. And so in one meeting, he told uh, he took out an old constitution that he had told me was invalid and on the basis of that constitution fired me because he was the only remaining officer left in the church. See see how this works. He should go into politics. (laughs) Well, he lied to me. So you can imagine the feeling that I had that a man could be capable of such a bald-faced deception. How could he even, how do you even pull that off? Chris was there at that meeting. It was a pretty memorable night. And um, so one of the things I learned from this was that I need to limit what I think I know. I thought I knew I was sure. This is a straight-up guy. He's reliable. I can depend on him. I know this. I, this I, can, I know people. I can read people. I know who's trustworthy and who's not. See, I, I got this wired at 27 or 26, however old I was. Um, what I had to realize was... He was not reliable, and I didn't know it. What I thought I knew, I was mistaken, badly mistaken. So maybe the next time, I should limit what I think I know about people, limit what I think I know about churches, and go in with a little less confidence in myself, because the things you say flows out of whom you trust. I was trusting in my own judgment. First thing we need to do is to limit what we think we know about the people in our lives, our families, church, our country. We think we know a lot. And what Augur is saying is, You need to put some limitations on what you think you know because there's a whole lot that we don't know. 
And that means there's a whole lot to learn. Okay. So the second thing that I took from this experience um, was the power of going back into the Word of God and learning. This is the, the virtue of learning, making a habit of, of acquiring more understanding, more knowledge. Lord, help me, teach me. Teach me from your word what you want me to know. I went into Proverbs and spent a number of months just uh, when this all, all was finally finished and, and um, uh, I had a lot of time on my hands because I didn't have a job. And so I went back through Proverbs and I saw point for point indications that you are dealing with a liar. I had seen every single one of them and had decided, oh, I, I, he's not that. He's okay. I had looked at God's word. I knew it, but I would not look at the situation I was in and actually reach the conclusion, God's word is talking about me right here dealing with this man. Why? Because I wanted the thing to work, that's why. I wanted what I wanted, and I was going after it, and I was putting God's name on it. So I thought I knew more than I did, and in fact, when I went back into the scriptures with that experience in mind and was corrected point after point after point, you missed this because you willfully didn't look at it. You missed this signal because in your supposed wisdom, you did not notice that he lied to these five people. And so you overlooked that because you knew better how this was supposed to work. Irreplaceable, wonderful experience of being schooled in God's word, by God's word, while in the school of hard knocks. So I learned that if I limit what I think I know, And if I develop the habit of going back into the scriptures and saying, no, really, every word of God proves true. When he gives me an indication that someone is a liar, I need to listen to that. And I need to make decisions accordingly because what I say and what I do flows out of whom I trust. Third thing I did, or I saw, was that I needed to experience the match between God's promises and his faithfulness in real life. In those months, many of you have have been between jobs. Some of you are between jobs right now. And you you know the fear of all of that. What's going to happen? Is the Lord going to provide all of these questions? We saw the Lord lead us day by day by day to the right place, at the right time, in the right ministry. And he, he showed us by experience his faithfulness financially. We had given $1,000 to this church for a, a building thing. We, we gave that because we had it, but... Um, we sure could have used it for a lot of other things. So here you get fired, but bye-bye gift to the church, right? God brought along a friend who as a farewell present gave us some stock that she did not need. Any guesses how much that stock was worth? $1,000. You see, when you have these experiences of, of seeing The Lord's word proves true, even when we have done foolish things. Then when you have that experience, you start to see, hey, I can trust him, and the decisions you make change, and the way you speak changes. Final thing uh, about this is the way we speak. This experience changed the way I preach, It uh, changed the way I uh, counseled. It changed the way I made decisions and led decisions in church meetings. Changed all kinds of things 
about what I said because this experience shifted who I trusted. I stopped trusting people and I stopped trusting myself. God became the one I trusted more and more. So those decisions changed. What I said got better. The sermons went deeper. Why? Because they were coming out of that confidence in who God is. And we're still learning this. I'm still putting all of this together. And um, will be till I die, I hope. Because this is an ever-continuing, never-ending process of learning to trust God. And what we are saying here is that if you trust the Lord by committing to learn His Word, it will change the way you speak. I can give you little formulas and little tactics to use that will help you to present yourself well and to do better and maybe to win this or that point, win this or that customer. I can give you all of that stuff and it would be totally useless because it would not address the fundamental question in all of our hearts. Whom do we trust? That's the only question there is. It is out of that trust or distrust that we speak and that we decide. We want to speak wisely. Let's start at the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. A couple of questions that I've put in the bulletin outline for you. These take you right to uh, our self-esteem. The way we view ourselves and what we may be confident of or distrustful in. I just ask you this question uh, to ponder this week and maybe pray about, what have I stopped questioning about myself? I'm just assuming I've got this one wired. What is that thing? If you identify that thing, that area where you feel, I got that. Whatever else I don't have, that one I've got nailed. Identify it and start to question it again. I find this very helpful. Wherever I think I'm strong, I start probing, questioning, wondering, what is really down there? And inevitably, I find that the Lord needs to be down there instead of what I'm trusting in. So I throw that question out to you. The second question is, what will you do this week to start building a habit of learning the Word of God? What is one step you need to take maybe changing the way you read, maybe building a routine of reading and praying, whatever that may be, just name one thing that you're going to start doing to say, Lord, teach me. I need to learn your word or I will never learn how to speak. Looks like I've got some questions here, so let's see what they are. Okay, are we... Uh, to thank you. What is our place to be uh, as Christians in relation to uh, somebody who says something vulgar as uh, Donald Trump did? Um, Should we keep dwelling on it or should we uh, just forgive, move on? A couple of thoughts here. Um, First of all, we need to understand something about what an apology is. What Donald Trump did was not an apology. It was a it was the old um, thing of if anyone is offended, I apologize. Okay? Weasel words. An actual apology starts with the assumption or the knowledge, I know you're offended or we wouldn't be at this place, right? Um, Secondly, in his statement, he 
went on to take shots at another uh, vulgar politician we've gotten to know well. And at one point said that he had uh, said worse things to Donald Trump on the golf course, this, this kind of thing. Listen, the term for that is blame shifting. It is comparison of what I have done with what someone else has done. And uh, in that comparison, um, you make the other guy look worse than what you did. Uh, And the scriptures have a lot to say about this. Um, One of the things that Paul says in Corinthians, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, those who compare themselves with themselves are not wise. When we compare ourselves with other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as this, we are basically not owning the thing that we have done and the actual damage that we have done. So uh, my first response to that would be, um, based on his, his public statements, um, those are not apologies. Now, and let me qualify this by saying, I don't tell you who to vote for. I, this is very difficult, this whole election. We got trouble right here in River City. And, and we, so I'm not saying that, uh, you know, you should go forth and, and not vote for Trump. I'm not saying you must vote for Gary Johnson. I'm, I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying, as Christians, look it straight in the eye. Whatever that was, it was not an apology. And it's a public statement. It was made to the entire country. I have every right as a pastor to evaluate it in this way. If the Lord chooses to do something in his heart and is doing that even today, the Lord has the power to do that. But um, uh, we need to call it for what it is. Um, Now, uh, what do we do in relation to this and other incidents where... Uh, a man's vulgarity has just been thrust into our faces and he apologizes for this. I mean, this has gotten to be a little ritual, right? Um, And uh, whether it's sexting over Twitter or having an affair with an intern or whatever it is, it's just, it's on and on and on. Should we continue to dwell on it? Um... Yes and no. No in the sense that God is free to do with these rascals whatever he sees fit to do. He has taken hardened political hacks and converted them and used them to build his kingdom. The name of one such hardened political hack was Chuck Colson. So the grace of God can even reach politicians. Um, He said bitterly and with resentment in his heart after having given a sermon about the things we say. Um, So, you know, in this... (laughs) So you got me. Uh, So there is this sense in which we need to look at this and say... um, You are custodians of our civic life by virtue of having these offices. You have misused your place in our civic life. That is a breach of trust with the whole society. Um, You can apologize to your wife, and that still doesn't um, touch the issue of the breach of trust with society as a whole, with us. Uh, So... um, And I wouldn't call this hanging on to an offense. I would call this simple accountability. An apology that is actually an apology acknowledges the actual wrong done and says something about that with no excuses taking responsibility for it. So um, 
I don't think it's uh, quite a matter of uh, hanging on to this. I think it's a matter of just saying um, there was no responsibility taken here. And um, so we haven't heard that apology yet. Um, One other thing that we should do, and somewhat urgently, there are pastors uh, in connection with every political candidate. We need to pray for those men. We need to ask God to give them an assertive boldness to say what needs to be said. Um, And we also need to exercise tremendous charity toward those men who in public ways come alongside erring leaders, whether they're corporate CEOs or uh, presidents or uh, candidates, whoever it may be, um, don't assume that there's nothing of a spiritual nature going on there or that it's all a show. Pray. Because the Lord can use those pastors. Um, uh, So, very good question. I'm dwelling on that because um, we just, we're in trouble. And we need, to, we need to get back to some very basic things here. Here's a verse for us from a brother here. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Great way to limit what we think we know is to boast instead in our weaknesses. Another question, if I have been praying for some time and searching the scripture for insight but just do not seem to see any changes in the situation, time is short, what should I do? Um, You're looking for wisdom in the word of God um, and you're up against a deadline, you can't seem to make a decision is what I'm taking from that question. Um, The word of God is the key to this whole thing, but the body of Christ is another key. We want the leading of the Holy Spirit, but we often don't seek the leading of the Holy Spirit through the counsel of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit moves when we gather up counselors and we say, what do you think of this? How are you viewing this situation in my life? Here's a decision I'm facing. What do you think I ought to do about this? And um, uh, those are very helpful conversations. They often turn up avenues that were maybe missing, you didn't think of. Offers of help, uh, not just wisdom, can come from those kinds of conversations. So uh, if you're stuck in searching the scriptures, bring the scriptures to the body and see what the Holy Spirit brings to light through that. And uh, that would be a next step. By no means should you make a decision based on timelines, deadlines. Um, If the deadline is urgent, then the need to consult and open up to the body of Christ is that much more urgent. Uh, So I would encourage you to, to do that. Excellent questions. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... We have talked about our country. We have talked about uh, the events of this past weekend and indeed the entire election cycle. Father, we all together pray for Donald Trump. The best thing for our society, whether he wins or loses, is that he really come to know you. And so we ask that you would use the people around him, the people who have his ear, who would be able to show him the knowledge of God so that he can learn the fear of you. Father, we pray for Hillary Clinton. We ask that uh, you would again use many Christians around her, uh, her upbringing as a Methodist. Uh, We do not know her spiritual state any more than we know Donald Trump's state. But, Father, the best thing for our country is that the Holy Spirit would bring her to a knowledge of you, a knowledge of your word, and that she would walk with you 
uh, win or lose. Father, we, we lift up the outcome of this election and we confess we do not know what the right outcome is. We do not know what you have in store for this country. But we know that if we trust you, we can speak into this situation in a way that represents your grace, your goodness, and your truth. So we ask you to build this into our hearts as we study how we use words in the coming weeks. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.